At the T-minus three-minute mark, tape recorders on board the spacecraft were turned on. These recorders record both voice and data. This is WOMMLP operating our Burlington Vermont 105.9 The Radiator. Good evening. It is the Rocket Shop once again. I am your host, Tom Prox, and with me tonight, uh, a a big heavy world favorite, Rick Polari. How's it going? It's doing okay, Tom. It's great to be out in the world <laughs> again. I mean, this is the first time, Tom, that that I've been, you know, the, you know, since maybe last summer I did something, but it's been very, very. Uh, I've been very cautious. And so now that we can all gather together in a safe way, I'm really glad to, to have this kind of opportunity right here at Big Heavy World, you know, uh, to come back and, and to share music and, and uh, some stories together with you, Tom. Well, I'm happy you're in. I always know you're a great storyteller. I'm looking forward to this interview. You've always got a yarn to spin. <laughs> um, we always like kicking it off with the song, though, Rick. So what have you got for us? Well, I thought I would just, you know, I, you know, when the, the pandemic started, uh, Jim Lockridge asked me if if I would be able to do something at the radiator to uh, kind of calm people down a little bit, you know. So I started doing this hard-hitting uh, songs and stories for hard-hitting times. And, uh, and, and every, every Tuesday, it's been really wonderful, a very healing kind of thing. And I always started with, uh, with this little song. I'm remembering the days before I went away, way back in the hills of Old Vermont. And the orchard on the hill, I think I see it still, way back in the hills of Old Vermont. Oh, tonight I long to be where the catamount run free. And the rattlesnake can lie out in the sun Near the voices of the loons When the apple blossoms bloom Way back in the hills of Old Vermont Now there used to be a barn Near the old fishing pond Way back in the hills of Old Vermont So many fields of hay now gone with yesterday, way back in the hills of Old Vermont. Tonight I long to be where the catamount run free and the rattlesnake can lie out in the sun. Near the voices of the loons when the apple blossoms bloom, way back in the hills of Old Vermont. Well, everything has changed, nothing stays the same Way back in the hills of Old Vermont Like the old brown panther's roar, you won't hear that no more Way back in the hills of Old Vermont Tonight I long to be where the catamount run free And the rattlesnake can lie out in the sun Near the voices of the loons When the apple blossoms bloom Way back in the hills of Old Vermont 
But when the rains came down and flooded many towns way back in the hills of old Vermont, all the neighbors lent a hand for the loving of the land way back in the hills of old Vermont. For tonight I long to be where the catamaran run free And the rattlesnake can lie out in the sun Near the voices of the loons when the apple blossoms bloom Way back in the hills of Overmont All right, Rick Polari serenading us on the way into this interview tonight uh, lovely song. Um, very, I think very apt for the kind of time of year we're in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the cool thing is, Tom, when I'm at home and late at night, I can sit out on the deck and I hear the loons over from Lake Iroquois. And when I wrote the song, there weren't loons there. <laughs> <laughs> so it, so it's, it's pretty cool uh, that actually where I'm living is sort of like manifested it into my ideal right. uh, of, of what this life is all about. And, you know, it's been um, sort of a, an interesting time during this pandemic because you thought a lot about all the years that you've been away. I mean, I spent, you know, I've been living in Vermont now uh, for 41 years. And uh, I spent 10 years over in, in Springfield. Uh, Vermont, and most of the time I've been here. Uh, but I would travel so much. You know, I'd be out on the road. I'd go out sometimes six months. Uh, and that wasn't, that wasn't very uh, uncommon for me to go that long. And, uh, and so it's really interesting to actually be here in Vermont uh, for all this time and realize how beautiful it is and how great it is to, to be living somewhere that you really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a good reason why a lot of people flock into the state right now. It's a fantastic place to be. Uh, I think the spring and summer is uh, uh, showcases its best parts, uh, although I still do love the winter. Um, so you're in tonight to discuss a little bit about, uh, I guess it's a new project or a new, the culmination of a new project, um, yeah. which is an autobiography, yeah. Banjo Man. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, you have a, a long and storied history, uh, especially in the realms of folk music. Um, so first of all, tell me why, why now? Why was the moment to kind of write your life story this, this period of time? Well, I think that you know, I had written a book before called The Road is My Mistress, and I never quite felt that it told the full story. It really stopped way before some of the, the seeds that I had planted had really sprang into something important. Uh, and, uh, and also, my mentors all passed away. Mm. The people that I learned from were gone. And I felt the need to tell the story for those people who would never have that chance to be around them that I could share some of the insights of what it was like to be around with Pete Seeger in a very kind of informal way over at his house. And what was he really like? What was Utah Phillips really like? Jimmy Driftwood and, and uh, you know, some of the, the old musicians that, uh, that I met, uh, like uh, Sis Cunningham. 
You know, Tom, I didn't realize uh, at the time how lucky I was to have um, spent so much time with uh, uh, some of these people and how they affected my life. And because uh, Pete Seeger came into my life when I was really 19 years old, uh, I had a long history with Pete. And uh, the book really spans that history because the book ends uh, with a celebration of Pete's, Pete's life that we did over at Lincoln Center. That was, I mean, playing at Lincoln Center was just, that was like as good as it gets, Tom. <laughs> you had Judy Collins over here, and you had, you know, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary over there, and Dar Williams, and you just everybody was there. But, you know, that was the, the reason that I chose to end in, in that, uh, that time was because it brought everything back together from this idea of this youthful kid who was searching for something, he wanted to be a musician, and he really had no roadmap to get there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at, at the end of it, you see everything that kind of developed along the way. Yeah, let's kind of bring it back to some of that childhood stuff because I've been flick. I flicked through the Dios biography, and um, it was yeah, you, you really kind of spanned the whole the whole distance. And there was definitely some parts at least in the beginning that um, were quite interesting, and it, especially in your formative years, um, some of those events. You living in a commune, you're a greaser at one point with a switchblade, <laughs> um, which is far cry from what you are now it's difficult to think of you in a leather jacket i you know the the whole thing tom is that i think that that we have to understand that young people have to try on different Mm -hmm. different ideas like who who are you and who who uh who you're not you know and and hopefully as a young person you find out quickly when you put on that persona hey that's not me that's not me at all and so I was like I, I was I was searching for you know who who am I anyway, and so I went through a lot of things, and um, and you know when I think back on it sometimes you know you know there is Tom this is really kind of interesting, in Japan, they have this philosophy, that if you have a pot, a beloved pot, and the pot falls down and breaks that you don't throw it away, that you take it and you put it back together and you fill the crack with gold. And it makes the faults more beautiful than the pot had ever been. So sometimes in your life when you have these little breaks and faults that they are part of who you are and you have to learn how to embrace them not, not to say that everything that we do in life is good. We make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And so I felt that uh, when I was writing the book that I had to be honest with people. You know, you don't want people to think that, oh, yeah, everything was, was great. No, it wasn't great. I came from a really difficult family. My father was abusive. You know, I went through a lot of uh, mm, difficulties uh, with him. Uh, and uh, so I basically was a latchkey child uh, and uh, grew up on my own. Uh, and I kept, I was searching for, for something, and, and the, the thing that I was searching for was music. 
And then, I, then I, I was trying to figure out, well, how, how can I play this music? I don't know. You know, I didn't, have, I didn't have a roadmap. Nobody was giving me any ideas about these things, and I'm trying to figure it out myself. And it wasn't until, you know, when I was in, in high school that, um, that I stumbled on Pete Seeger. And, uh, you know, I was, I was in a rock and roll band. I was loading their equipment. I was the equipment boy getting paid in hamburgers. And, uh, and the, the band manager played guitar. And uh, I, I told him that I was hearing the sound of a banjo in my head. Now, that's the weird thing, Tom. I don't know how that happened or why that happened, but I was hearing the sound of a banjo in my head. And, um, and I told him about it. And, well, he told me about this guy that would come on Sesame Street, big tall guy with a banjo. And so I would go and watch Sesame Street early in the morning with my young sister, Lisa. Uh, she'd tell me, oh, Pete Seeger's on TV. So I would go and, and I'd watch him. And there was something magical about him that when he came to uh, Douglas College to a little chapel, I, I was in high school and I skipped out that day. It was one of those smart decisions that I had. And Pete was playing over in the, in the, uh, the little chapel. And, uh, and everybody had really long hair at that time, and so did I. So I slipped right through. Nobody questioned me. And I uh, watched the concert. And he's there playing. Tom, he's playing. And there was something about the way that he reached out and everyone sang along that filled my body with light. My body started filling up with this bright light. And that was the beginning of, of this big change that was inside of me. I said, this is what I want to do with my life. This is it. And I got to say hello to Pete backstage. I asked him why he liked, he liked the banjo. And he smiled at me. He said, because I like the tone. <laughs> That meant the world to me, that he talked to me. And then I started really learning how to, you know, I got his book and started learning how to play. And I, you know, I, I, I got this, maybe you want to hear a little yeah. story about the banjo here. And uh, I got the banjo right over here. The same banjo from when you were a kid or? No, this, this one is, is a different one, but. So I was learning, trying to learn how to play, and I got the Pete Seeger book, and I finally did save up all my lunch money. I was on strike. I was not eating, you know, because you're a young kid. Where do you get money? Lunch money. So I was not eating. My mother didn't know. I saved up all my money, uh, and I got a banjo, and then I, I was learning how to play the banjo through this book. Uh, and uh, I was trying to figure out any way that I could about learning new things, and so I went... I heard that there was this place down in the Pine Barrens, New Jersey, down at the bottom of New Jersey, kind of really unusual place. And so I convinced a friend of mine that he could play mandolin. <laughs> and he got himself a mandolin. And together we went hitchhiking and we were going to Albert's Cabin. I didn't know what it was. I just heard the name. I heard Albert's Cabin. <laughs> 
We went down into the, going down into Mount Holly. There was a little music store there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking. I'm saying, we're going to go down to Albert's cabin. Well, the guy who was there, he says, well, I'm going to go down to Albert's cabin tonight. Do you want to come with me? And I'm saying, yeah, well, that sounds great. Yeah. So we climb into his car after we close up the shop, and we're driving down, and we're driving down the road, and he gets onto the New Jersey Turnpike, and he's going south, and all of a sudden, he makes a quick turn and starts going the wrong way on the other side of the highway. Hmm. (laughs) So, like, we're going south. He goes into the north lane, but he's still going south, and then he goes into the woods. Now, I'm saying, who is this guy anyway? I just met him. I mean, who? I don't have any idea who it is. So here we are, these young teenage kids, and we're starting to have all these kind of crazy ideas, like maybe, who, who knows, maybe this guy's like an axe murderer or something, and we're sitting there, and we're driving through this, you know, these, these dirt paths, and there's these abandoned kind of bunch of washing machines and and all kinds of refrigerators and there was this tree that had this mirror in it and when we were driving the it shot back the lights and I was like I felt like I was in a horror film and like we were getting really really scared and then we heard the sound of music fiddles banjos and he goes here we are boys we pull in And there's Albert's cabin, an old hunting cabin out in the pines. And there on the front porch is a young kid about my age and an old man. And they both have banjos. So I take out my banjo and I play a little bit. And we're playing Cripple Creek, a couple of things. And then the old man, he he goes, uh, goes, well, we're going to play all the the old Joel Clark. You know that one? And I said... No, I don't know that one. And he goes, well, my name is Sam Hunt. I've been living here over in the Pine Barrens all my life. You know, I've been playing banjos. I make banjos. I have, you know, I make a old snake, uh, Vonnegut snake box boats. You know, I do everything. I travel all over and, and make these. And this guy talked fast and furious. I mean, he was t- talking so fast, I could hardly understand him. And then he goes, so you don't know that old Joe Clark. Well, why don't we learn it right now? And he looked at me and said, well, you know, you take your finger and, you, and you, you put it on the second string like that. Can you do that? And I went, good. He said, now put one finger behind the other on the, on the first string and pluck it off. Can you do that? I said, all right. He said, put them together. He said, now hit it open. Now fret the second string. Now hit it open. He goes, that's it. And before you know it. That's how I learned the old Joe Clark from old Sam Hunt. So everywhere that I went, Tom, I would be learning from anybody that I could learn from. 
And, uh, and it, it was a while until, you know, that, that moment when I, I did actually, you know, get to meet Pete. And that was, I was 19 at that time, 19 years old. And he was playing a concert over in Central Park. Uh, and Arlo Guthrie was playing there. Now, my sister, Lisa, remember her? Woke, woke me up when he came on Sesame Street. She was in New York City with my mom. And they were looking at museums with my younger sister, Tina. And they saw all these people putting out blankets. And Lisa says, what's going on? Oh, Pete Seeger or Arlo Guthrie are playing today. Well, somehow, my sister got the idea that, oh, Rick and Pete, they're close friends, you know. I bet you he's backstage right now. So she went over to the guy who was watching the gate, and she said, my brother's with Pete Seeger. Uh, can you take me there? And the guard did. He took <laughs> Tina and, and Lisa, and they went back, and they met with Pete, and they were telling him about me and God knows what. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I went to the concert that night, and it was a fantastic concert. And uh, near the end, Pete says, well, you know, we're going to have a big festival tomorrow. Hoboken, New Jersey, benefit for the Clearwater. Everybody's welcome. I was excited. I said, I'm going to go to that. It wasn't that far. So I get up the next morning. You know, I put my banjo on my back. I'm going to go out the door. And Lisa looks at me and she says, did you know that Pete Seeger files his nails? I said, what? I had no idea of what took place. I got over to Hoboken and I joined with a few people. There were some young people like myself were sitting around playing guitar. Well, who comes walking over? But Pete, he opens up his guitar case puts this big 12-string on, he comes over and he starts playing with us, you know, and I'm like, I, I'm like, what's going on here? I can't believe this, you know? And then the music stops and he looks at me and he goes, I haven't seen you before. Who are you? I was petrified. I said, I'm Rick Polari. And he smiled. He goes, Rick, I met your sisters yesterday. They told me you were a good banjo player why don't you come up on stage and we'll play a couple songs together. And he took me up on stage, Tom, and my life mm -hmm. changed from that moment on. Wow. Quite a story. And thank God for your sisters, hey? And uh, <laughs> their, their, their uh, belief that you and, you and Pete were very good friends uh, worked out well in the end. Um, you mentioned the Clearwater just then, and, and obviously we know that you, you were on that boat um, I, I would love to hear kind of that story, how, how that started, but just quickly, what was it about sailing down the Hudson with, with the boat? And you mentioned in the book that Pete liked sailing before he had a bit of a dinghy before he got the, before the sloop. Um, what was it about sailing that really called to Pete and, and how does that tie in with folk music and the, and the atmosphere and the culture of folk? It was in the late 1960s that Pete had, he would call it a bathtub of a boat, and he was trying to sail. His wife Toshi knew how to sail, so they were, they were, you know, they were sailing this little boat, and Pete had this idea, well, would it be really great if we could get a really nice boat to sail in the Hudson, but the Hudson's polluted, and, you know, we could use this sailboat, and we could tell people about how we, if we cleaned up the Hudson, that everybody could be sailing on the Hudson, and then we could be swimming in the Hudson. Everybody thought he was out of his mind, you know. But he starts getting people together. He read this book about sloops on the Hudson. Uh, and uh, a young 
another young player named Vitz, Vic Swartz. Uh, he handed them that book, and he said, you know, maybe we can raise money for this boat that you're thinking about. And they started doing little, little concerts, you know, tiny little concerts. And, and they started raising more and more money so that in 1969, I believe it was in May, they launched the Sloop Clearwater out of Maine. And the thing about the Clearwater on that maiden voyage, it was Pete and all musicians with, with a couple of, of people who really knew how to sail. But most of them were musicians. Don McLean was on there. Gordon Bach was on there. Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who, who did know how to sail, Gordon Bach. And so they, they went down the Hudson River and they did concerts all along the way. And, uh, and that was really the beginning of how, you know, he brought that message and brought people to the river. And, he, and it, exactly what he was hoping for started happening. People were looking at the river and saying, you know, this river really needs to be cleaned up if we're going to sail in it. And before you know it, the, the group got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it's still going on uh, over 50 years later. And they have a big, uh, I'll be playing at the Clearwater Revival. It's virtual this year, but I'll be playing there. Uh, and I think it's June 19th is coming up. Yeah, I've actually got a friend that I think a couple of seasons ago was on the, was on the sloop. Um, and so, yeah, tell us a little bit about your experience on the boat. Well, you know, I mean, I was here. I didn't know much about, you know, I, I was getting interested in, in the boat because of Pete, of course. And I joined, I joined the organization uh, when I was still in high school. And I thought that you had to know a lot of stuff. So I took, uh, you know, a, a, a Coast Guard boating course after school. <laughs> so here was all these guys decked out in these white captain's hat with these white shoes. They all, you know, and here's this, you know, guy with real long hair and <laughs> learning about, um, trying to learn about, uh, about sailing. And I didn't understand that they taught you everything that you needed to know. But uh, Pete got he, when when we we got to kind of form this this kind of relationship. He would call me up, and he wanted me to uh, organize a festival down in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And so um, he couldn't come that time, but we had Harry Chapin and uh, and Bob McGrath from Sesame Street, uh, and uh, it was a fantastic. Uh, a fantastic festival. We, we brought about a thousand people down to this the Perth Amboy Harbor, uh, and, and it was really great. And afterwards, Bob McGrath said, "Rick, you know, why don't you come out on the on the sloop Clearwater, and uh, and and you can back me up. I'll sing, and you can play your banjo." So that was the first time I went sailing on the Clearwater. And right after that, and the, the the amazing thing, Tom, was you know here we are, you know, get on the boat. And the boat starts sailing, not sailing, but, but kind of motoring out just a little ways. And then everybody, get on deck, form two lines. Everybody has the ropes, and we start pulling up the sail. And one of the, the, the guys was, uh, was singing, In South Australia I was born, Heave away, haul away, South Australia round Cape Horn, Bound for South Australia. And everybody's pulling on the rope. Come on, all you roving kings, To me heave away, to me haul away. Come on, all, let's hear you sing, Bound for South Australia. It was like a magical trip. 
all of a sudden people are singing and the sails are going up and we're sailing down. And uh, after the sail, we're getting off the boat and they said, Rick, can you stay with us for a while? We have a bunch of festivals to do. And it'd be really great if you just stayed on. So I stayed on for a couple of weeks and uh, did all kinds of concerts. And then, and then ever since then, we would have these big pumpkin sails where we would load on pumpkins on the boat and do concerts up and down the Hudson River. And uh, it, it was a really special time. Yeah, it certainly sounds it. Um, well, we'd love to hear another song. Um, so what have you got for us? Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, because I brought along the, the Native American flute. Oh, nice. And uh, I wanted to introduce uh, this next piece with this. I, you know, I mean, it's, there's so much in this book, as you can tell. It's, what, 530 pages. So, folks, you, there's, there's you know, a lot of skipping around that we're doing right now <laughs> to get to this point <laughs> where I was out in the Native American Reservation, out in the Standing Rock Reservation, and I met with Kevin Locke, one of the great flute players. And that's how I learned how to play the flute. And... Uh, <laughs> I was doing all these school tours on all these reservations, and I really, you know, I was meeting with a lot of Native Americans, and I, I really wanted to learn about some storytelling. So uh, I was trying to listen to how people were telling stories, and then I got back home here, and I realized one of the best storytellers was right here in Vermont. His name was Wolf Song. And Wolf Song and I became friends, and we started talking, and he said, you know, he goes, I'll tell you what, I'll teach you how to tell some stories if you teach me how to play that flute like Kevin taught you. So we became friends. We got together and played the flute, told stories together. But, you know, Wolf Song didn't, uh, didn't last as long as we would have liked and passed away way before his time. And I can remember, you know, they had a big celebration when Wolf Song passed away. Went out to Snake Mountain, they scattered his ashes there. And I was thinking about, you know, that I should honor my friend 
in a traditional way and write a song about him. So I went out to Snake Mountain and I looked up into the mountain and there's that little part where there's a clearing and I started thinking about him. And I remembered when he would tell a story, he always wanted you to participate. So he would say, hey. And he said, if you're listening, you reply, ho, try that. When, hey, ho. So he would always get the audience, hey, ho, hey, ho, hey, ho. On Snake Mountain, in the Vermont hills, high above the rocks and rills, after midnight, when the moon's in spring, you can hear the wolf song sing. Hey, ah, 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 hey, oh, hey, ah, 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 hey, oh, he was a man. Walked this land, and he came from Abenaki clan. He shared his stories, he shared his soul, reaching out to young and old. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, ah, 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 hey, oh. the legends he kept the lore and was welcome at every door he heard the calling of the loon then he left with the daughter of the moon no 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 hey journey and this world is through but he still lives in me and you like Usagabi and all his friends now his story will never end no 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 hey ah hey ah hey ah we remember hey ah hey ah hey, hey. oh Rick Polari honoring another Vermont storyteller there. Um, so yeah, we're gonna skip forward a little bit because we've got to be conscious on time. Um, so you've done, you did a lot post. Clearwater post Pete Seeger. I guess nothing was ever post Pete Seeger, really. But um, you uh, you visited Poland on a number of occasions. Once getting chucked out because they thought you might be a spy. Um, also did a ton of touring across the country um, and even internationally. Australia, Germany. Um, met some cowboys out in the West. Um, yeah, uh, everything. If you could pick out just just one one really kind of bright spark of a story in your, your time 
post uh, Clearwater. What, what would you kind of fixate on in, in terms of being a formative experience that kind of ended up shaping you in the person you are today? Oh, there's, there's just, uh, there's so many. Because wherever you go, Tom, you meet up with these different characters, you know, uh, and everyone teaches you something. Now, I can remember out in Timbo, Arkansas, and when I met up with Jimmy Driftwood. Now, Jimmy Driftwood is not a household name, but you know his song, The Battle of New Orleans, because uh, of Johnny Horton. And uh, I was out in Timbo doing the school tour, and I was sitting around playing with a bunch of people, and the, this one guy comes and he goes, you know, Jimmy would like you. I said, Jimmy? He goes, yeah, Jimmy would like you. He goes, where are you staying anyway? And I said, well, I'm sleeping over in my camper with my dog over here. He said, well, you can't stay here in town, you know. He goes, you can follow me. So I followed him, and I went, oh, about seven miles to this little town called Timbo. And it was a school there. He says, well, you park right over here in this school. And uh, he says, and then you get up in the morning and go have breakfast with Jimmy. He lives right over there. And I, <laughs> I didn't believe him. I thought he was pulling my leg. And I went to sleep. And I looked at my dog, Koza at the time. I said, Koza, yeah, well, we're going to have breakfast with Jimmy Driftwood, you know. I went to sleep, and then early in the morning, somebody's knocking on my window. I, I look over, there's a guy in a red shirt and a black hat. He goes, howdy, my name's Jimmy Driftwood. Breakfast is on the table. Come on in. So I walked in, and there's Jimmy Driftwood. And he's got all these instruments, and he has him, puts his grandfather's guitar in my hand and he starts telling stories he's taking out his grammy he goes hey you know i got one two of those grammys he says i'm glad i got two i can use them for door stops i got <laughs> one for the front and one for the back well you know it, this was unbelievable and every time that i'd visit with jimmy he would we would sit and he would tell stories over and over again and uh, you know tom one of my favorite stories uh, was this one I'm going to share with you. He goes, um, he goes, you know, he goes, it was back in around 1958. I was traveling all over the world back then, you know. I, I got invited over there to England to play at a country western club. Mm. Now, now, when I got there, I saw all the men they had on cowboy hats and they had holsters with guns. Now, I'm from the Ozarks, and we're used to carrying around guns. We don't bring them into the auditorium. But I figure it's a different country. They might have different customs. You never know. So I got near the end of my program. I says, well, now I'm going to sing you my famous song, The Battle of New Orleans. This big guy stands up and goes, well, what do you think we paid you to come here for, Jimmy? said, I didn't hesitate. Well, in 1814, we took a little trip along Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we fought the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. Now, when I got to that course, well, they fired their guns. Guess what? They reached in their holsters, pulled out their revolvers. Boom, 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 firing their guns. Every time I said fire their guns, they fired their guns. When I got done with the song, you couldn't see the back of the room for all the gun smoke. <laughs> We're in 1814, we took a little trip along Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. 
took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Fired our guns and the British kept coming. Wasn't quite as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run it down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Ran through the bushes and railroad go. Ran so fast that the house couldn't catch him. Down to Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Jimmy Driftwood. <laughs> now, Tom, when you experience somebody like that, you're not going to forget it. <laughs> so it was Jimmy who said, "Now, Rick, you can't go around wearing no cheap hats because you got to you got to at least get a good Stetson hat." He gave me a special number to go down and get us a good hat. You gotta wear good shirts, you can't wear. You know, that's the whole thing is that if you're gonna be a performer, look like a performer. I heard this from so many of the old timers. You know, my friend Utah Phillips, I was interviewing him and I said, Utah, what's the, the most important thing for a young performer to know? He said, two shirts. <laughs> so what, what do you mean, two shirts? I'm asking you a serious question. I'm telling you a serious question. I'm answering that question. Two shirts, you need two shirts. He said, you're gonna go to a gig, you're gonna be wearing a black shirt. You're gonna have a black curtain, so you're gonna disappear. Next day, you're gonna wear a red shirt. I have a red curtain, you're gonna disappear. You gotta carry two shirts, Rick. I'm telling you, you gotta wear it, you know. I didn't believe him, Tom. You know, the next month, I wore the wrong shirt for almost every show. <laughs> I was interviewing Sarah Lee Guthrie. I had a red shirt. There was a red curtain behind me. The only thing, and I, I was disappearing, really. It was terrible. Uh, I could see it in the, in the video camera. And I, you know, as I kind of, I squeezed into behind the black, <laughs> the black speaker. So she's sitting there and I'm sitting behind this black speaker. Oh gosh, it was, it was crazy. But, uh, you know, it, doing the, the, the TV show, The Songwriter's Notebook, you know, that I started in 1999, that's what really brought all of these people into my life. That, you know, when, when you're doing a, a TV show, even if it's a little community show, you know, once that red light is on, you are with that person. You are with one and that one mind, you know, and so, you know, I would be with, you know, Tom Paxton and, and Pete and all these people that, that I never really thought about would want to do my show. Everybody wanted to do the show. So, you know, that's been, what, 20-some 20, 20 years. And, uh, and what happened was in 2009, the Library of Congress contacted me and said, uh, we want to see what you've, you've done. And uh, they saw some of the... The, uh, the interviews, and now there's the Rick Polari collection at the Library of Congress, American Folklife Center. We have 364 uh, different types of interviews, and some of them are studio interviews, but many of them are not. They're, you know, I went with the hobos, and I went uh, and climbed in the boxcars with the king of the hobos, uh, and all those guys, the hobos, they're all gone now. They're all the people that I interviewed. But they live on in the Library of Congress. You know, they'll live, you know, that was the cool thing, Tom. When I signed the contract with the Library of Congress, it said that you're donating your work to the future people of the United States of America. And that was a heavy moment. It was like you knew that long after you're gone that uh, this is what was going to remain 
was all of this work, and not just for you, but for everybody, for Rachel Bissix, for, you know, for Chin, Chin Ho, who was on my show. I mean, for Jim Lockridge, who was <laughs> on my show. Really, all of these people are now preserved in our national archives in the Library of Congress, and that gives me a lot of pride because it feels like, well, you know, I think you did something there, kid. <laughs> well, it's as much as it pains me to say it, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I, I feel that you've given us tonight just a, just a small snippet of what you could expect from, from this marvelous book of yours. Um, and it's, it's called Banjo Man. Um, how, do you, how do you get it, Rick? If people are interested in, in hearing the whole story, how well, do you yeah, find they this? Just go to my website, you know, for, you know, and you can see right there, you'll find out about Banjo Man. You know, it was one of those, those, those choices that you have. Because uh, my last book I had on Amazon, and I decided, you know, I don't want this to be like Amazon. I want this to be like an old-fashioned kind of thing. I want to sign the books. I want to send them to people. My wife makes a little uh, book bind, uh, a little um, uh, bookmark from our, our hand, uh, hand bindery. And it's real. It's something real. It's not something you buy from, from the store. Now, do we have time for another song or what? Go on, yeah. We've always short. got time for one more song with you, Rick. Go short, on. short, short. Because we're talking about Rachel Bissex and... Um, we we had a, a really cool thing with uh there was a big songwriting uh kind of event that happened in memory of Rachel and people from all over wrote songs and it was a really wonderful uh, demonstration about how important Rachel Bissex was to all of us and she was a good pal of mine. And uh, so I had not written a song in a while. And I wrote this little... about this pandemic. We'll gather together, gather together. We'll gather together as the virus leaves this land. Gather together, gather together, gather together as the virus leaves this land. Been so long since I felt your face. It's been so long since I felt your grace. But we'll all dance together, we'll all dance together, we'll all dance together as the virus leaves this land. We'll all dance together, we'll all dance together, we'll all dance together as the virus leaves this land. That's what I'm hoping, folks. <laughs> I hope that everybody out there uh, is going to get vaccinated so that we can all be together, we can sing together, we can dance together, and uh, more people can come right here in the studio and, and be a part of this wonderful broadcast that has been going on for so long and be a part of the big, heavy world community uh, because it's important 
what uh, what Jim and all the, the people here at Big Heavy World have been doing for so long. You know, it's, it's, Tom, it's really unusual for someone who doesn't play music, who is not somebody who's an, an actual musician, to put so much time and energy and love in helping the musical community. And that's what Jim Lockridge has done for so long, ever since I've known him. Back when he had really long hair <laughs> down, to, <laughs> down, down to the middle of his back. He's been here, and he's going to stay here. And I thank you, Jim Lockridge, for all the things that you do. And, Tom, I thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Ray, for coming on and telling us so many of those great stories again. We always love having you in. Uh, such a musical talent, but I think your real talent lies in telling those stories. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Um, well, that is all we've got time for tonight. You can join us next week. We're going to have Abby BK in the studio, um, and um, she's going to be really great. So definitely tune in for that one. This has been WOMLP operating out of Burlington, 105.9 The Radiator. It's been The Rocket Shop. Good night.